Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Data-Driven Real Estate Podcast, a podcast for real estate professionals dedicated to driving business success using data. I'm Aaron Norris, and today we are here with Neil Bawa. Uh, he is with Grow Capitus, founder of Grow Capitus, a commercial real estate investment company. Uh, he negotiates and acquires uh, commercial properties across the U.S. for nearly 500 investors with a portfolio of over 2,000. Neil also serves as CEO of Multifamily U, an apartment investing education company, and you can even catch his work on Udemy. So welcome, Neil. Nice to see you. Thanks for having me on the podcast, Aaron. Uh, it's so exciting to be on a podcast that has the word data in its name. It's like, wow, I, I think I'm, I'm a fit for this. I think I'm a fit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know a, th- a few things about data and technology. So let's, let's back up a little bit and talk about your background. So it's not in real estate, it's in technology, right? It is. I mean, I, you know, most people that get into real estate start, uh, you know, with either private lending or maybe they, they do a fix and flip or maybe they, they, you know, buy a rental. In my case, I got into real estate in reverse. My first project was a $6 million new construction custom built Apple style campus that my comp- that tech company built for my, for us. Uh, so, I mean, it, and, and the way it happened was, you know, uh, I'd been running a company for 12 years and it had grown by leaps and bounds. Our, you know, our, our staff count was up 20x from when, when I started and we were doing so well that eventually the CEO of the company and the senior partner, I was a junior partner, said, we are not going to be renters. We want to be landlords. We want to do this ourselves. And I'm like, yes, that's really an awesome idea. And he's like, you're going to build our new campus. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I haven't even done re, I haven't even rehabbed my own house. What are you talking about? I don't know anything about this. You can't, we can't build anything from scratch. And I, no, 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 no. Don't worry about it. I know a lot about it. I'll mentor you. And he did. I mean, he knew tons. And so, you know, basically that started this 12 month time frame in 2003. It was nightmarish while I went through it because we were running this company that was growing 30% year over year, which already is very hard to do. So, eight to six, we run a company, and then 6 p.m. to 2 a.m., we're real estate guys planning and building a campus from scratch while running our company. And I have to tell you, I bitched and I moaned and I complained in every way possible for 12 months. And I haven't start. Yeah, you know, I haven't stopped thanking Paul for the last sixteen years. I mean, it was such a incredible learning experience. I look at these syndicators; they've been buying multifamily for ten years, and they don't know how to build one from scratch, right? And I have that experience of actually knowing things like, you know, um, what is the air conditioning and cooling flow for a particular area? What what are the fire door requir- requirements? I mean, there's a million things in the background. People know that there are rules, but they don't know why these rules exist. And so I had this incredible fortune of starting my, my real estate journey with this. It's almost like a master's degree in real estate construction in real time, right? Lab only, no, no, no theory, right? And so that's how I got started. And then it just sort of, you know, the ball sort of rolled from there. Was the, the building in California as well? It was, which meant that it was twice as hard to do, right? So it was in Fremont, California, which is Silicon Valley. And, and you know, they're, they're like... Just as you're done with their book of rules, they're like, oh, but we wrote this new book last week. Wait, wait, we're going to send it to you now, right? So that, yeah, that's California for you. So one of the biggest things I learned from that, and by the way, we ended up building six campuses, right? right? That was kind of just the beginning because it was such an explosive success for our business to build a custom campus for our needs. It, It drove our business. Like real estate usually doesn't drive technology businesses, but in this case it did. And so we ended up, you know, building or partially building six to Different campuses. As we were building those out, you know, I, I learned that 
it's a terrible idea to be building anything in California. So while I love California, I live in California. Now when I'm building, I'm, I'm building a 240 unit, I'm building 117 unit. They're all outside California because they're so much easier to build and the risk is so much lower. So yeah, ago, love California, yeah. just don't like building here. Uh, a lot of public builders would say the same thing. And we were talking to John Burns about that two sessions ago. So I, Hey, I, I don't blame you. Uh, but commercial is how you got started. Did you? How long did it take you to make the switch? Well, I did a weird switch. So I went commercial, then single family, then small multifamily, then very large multifamily, right? So it was kind of four steps. And I'll tell you my, my story, actually, that part of my story is interesting. So I love telling that. So, so I see all this stuff that's happening with this commercial building. I see the depreciation. I'm like, this is insane, man. The, the benefits in real estate are almost like cheating, right? This is the first time I've really been exposed to this. And guys like me, the big fat tech salary people, right? We're making a lot of money, but not keeping a lot of money, right? We're giving 50% of it away to California and to the feds. And so all of a sudden I start seeing the depreciation benefits. I'm like, ooh, this is awesome, right? And so... By the time I get to that point where I have the money to invest in it, it's already late 2008. So the world's falling apart. All sorts of bad things are happening. My family's telling me that I'm the world's greatest idiot for looking into real estate. And I'm like, no, 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 numbers, numbers. And they're like, what numbers? You, you're an idiot. Don't, don't buy real estate, right? So my family pretty much disavows me because they know that late in 2008, all of my evening time is spent doing research into real estate, right? All like data stuff. And, and I keep throwing Excel spreadsheets at them and they keep throwing four letter words at me, right? So this is kind of goes on for a while and eventually they're just, they just stop talking to me. And I'm like, look, I, I don't think that these guys get the numbers. The numbers are like incredibly powerful. So what I do is I'm like, I need to get numbers. And, and you know, I, I don't know if property radar existed back then, but I didn't, I couldn't find the data. So I'm like, I'm going to go. What are you looking for? What, what I was looking for was a very specific piece of information. I had heard that when real estate goes up, it goes up way far further than it should, right? Bubble. When it comes down, I'd also heard that it goes down too far, right? It goes down beyond where it should. So it's a natural sort of up and down thing. And so I was like, I need to find a piece of data, which is what I need to know every city in the US, what was the 2005 peak price or maybe 2006? And what is the 2008 December trough, right? So what is, what is that delta? Because that delta shows me which cities in America are good to invest in. Now, there's probably 10, 15 better ways of doing that. But back then, I was just beginning, right? I didn't, I didn't know what I didn't know. But that was actually a pretty good way of investing in 2008. So what I do is I go to this Ukrainian hacker on Upwork.com right? Which was called something else back then. I think it was called Odesk or something like that. Yeah, you're right. Right. So I go to this guy and I'm, I'm basically like, there's this website called Zillow and I want you to basically spider their 3,300 cities. And somewhere in there, there's a graph which shows, you know, their peak and their trough. And I want you to basically get that data and put it in Excel. And, and uh, I was like, you know, it's probably going to take this guy a month. Well, I got my lesson in the power of technology because 12 hours later, an Excel spreadsheet with 3,300 cities arrived in my, you know, in my Excel. So the first thing is I was like, God, please don't send the FBI to my door for, you know, crashing the Zillow website. And luckily, <laughs> luckily we didn't crash it, right? But he must have been on it like all night to get that much data out in a single day. So all I did was, I, I, I mean, this is where the power of data really started to, 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 you know, amaze me and it's never stopped amazing me. So I click on the button that basically shows the max fall right? From 2005 to 2008, it ends up being a Californian city, 
right? So I've never heard of this city. It's 144 miles from my home in, in, in Northern California, Madeira, California. So I, I, I Wikipedia it, and it turns out that it's 20 miles north of Fresno. Basically, a lot of the people that live there work in Fresno, so on and so forth. It's, it's, got, it's an agricultural area with lots of farms around it. I'm like, okay, Madeira, California. So it, this happens to be a Friday. So I jump into my car. It's Saturday now. I'm, I'm driving 144 miles. I show up in Madeira. And I spend the entire day talking with people and real estate agents in Madeira, developers, brokers. And here's what I learned. I learned that all of these homes that are being sold in Madeira are all brand new. They were all built in 2005, 2006 by Kaufman and Broad, right? One of the big, you know, big dude manufacturers, builders. And what these builders did is basically when these homes were ready, they had all these agricultural workers working around. They called them in and did these uh, no income show loans and basically filled out, they sold like 5,000 of these homes. And now pretty much that entire section of the city was empty because all those workers by 2008 had figured out these are not going to go up. They're going to go down. So they all left, right? So like it's section of Madeira, brand new, like even the roads were like dark black, right? They were all new, wow. was mostly empty, like 90% plus percent empty. So I go and see a developer and I say, how much does this home cost? I mean, it's available to me. If I want to buy 10 of them, I can buy them for $90,000 each. He says it cost me $180,000 just to build it. So I'm like, but how can it then be selling for 90,000? He says, they're not worth 90,000, Neil, but you don't understand the problem. There's only one problem. There's no tenants. If you had tenants right now, if you could figure that out, you would be very, very rich, right? And I'm like, I, that really stuck with me. So I'm like, I'm driving back, you know, 144 miles all the way. I'm like, how do I get people to come from 22 miles away, right? 22 miles away. How do I get all these people? There's all these beautiful homes. So ne next morning, I call up a, a bank in, in Madeira and I tell them, you know, I want to buy 10 of these properties, but I, I can't, I'm going to put them in contract and then I need timeline. I'm, I need time. I need, you know, 60 to 90 days. And the banks are like really friendly back then. You know, they're in so much trouble. So they're like, oh yeah, sure, sure. You know, we'll put 10 of them in contract for you and you can kind of walk around and, and do stuff. Okay. I'm like, this is great. So then I drive the next Saturday to Fresno, which is 20 miles further than Madeira. And I go there, I see an agent, I sit down with him and I say, I want to buy a property in Madeira, in, in Fresno, but I don't want it to be new. I want it to be old, like 20, 25 years old, not like falling apart old because I am buying it, but like, you know, not one of the newer properties you have in Fresno. So he's like, no, 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 we've got better deals on the newer side. And I'm like, no, no, please don't give me any new one. I have a reason. I want an older property for a reason. So the guy says, okay, we go and buy this property, you know, in like three or four days, it's done, $110,000 old, 1994 property. So then I go back to the Ukrainian hacker. Remember the Ukrainian hacker that hacked Zillow for me? So I go back to him and said, I have this home that I now own in Fresno. I want you to give me like an astonishingly large number of tenant leads. And he's like, why do you want so many tenant leads? You've only got one property. I'm like, no, no, I actually have 10 more properties to sell. I need a huge number of leads. So the guy basically does all of his hacks. He goes to all these websites like showmetherent.com, Cozy, and you know all these sites that we haven't even heard of. And he uses all his hacks to basically put that one address in like 55 different ways, right? So normally you can only put one address one way, but he figures out like here, if I add a semicolon, I can add the property again. If I add like an asterisk here, I can add it again. And before I know it, I'm receiving like my email box is just filled with hundreds and hundreds of leads. So then I realize there's no way I can process these leads. There's too many of them. So I go back to the Ukrainian guy and I say, do you have any people that can get on the phone and process leads for me? 
like, no, Ukrainians don't speak English well, you know, but there's this Filipino lady that we hire from time to time. She's really good. So I go after the Filipino lady again using Upwork.com and I hire her eight hours a day. We get her an American number that is kind of a Madeira number. Mm-hmm. And, and we tell her, hey, you're going to basically process all these people. And she's like, okay, what's my pitch? Well, pitch is this. Well, that Fresno one is leased out, right? So sorry, you were too late. But we have 10 brand new homes, beautiful. They're not three bedroom, they're four bedroom. And they're $400 less, right? And people are like, really? That's awesome. Yes, but they're 22 miles away in Madeira. Oh, no, I don't want to go to Madeira. I, you know, I'm, I'm a Fresno person. So if somebody said no, right? Our pitch was we would offer them a $25 gift card to go just to Madeira to check this home out and, you know, no other obligations. And if they said no, we would then bump it up to 50 bucks, right? And if they said yes, we would immediately schedule an appointment and save our 25 bucks. So she does this all day long, calling all these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of leads that this house in Madeira is getting. It's a little bit of bait and switch, but I'm offering something much better, right? So, um, 30 days later, without me having purchased any of these properties, they're all in contract, right? All those people from Madeira have, have visited, uh, all those Fresno people have basically gone there. Once they go there, they realize that nobody's ever lived in these homes. They're all brand new. They're beautiful. Coffin and Broad makes very good looking homes. And so I have 10 tenants. And on day one, I have an astonishing amount of cash flow because you're buying these things for $90,000. The tenants are paying you, you know, whatever, uh, 1200 bucks. And at the end of it, I mean, I couldn't believe that I'd actually pulled this off, but I did. And I made the, the greatest mistake of my life right there. I listened to my loan broker. He said, you can only buy 10 homes. So I only bought 10. What he should have said is, you can only get conventional loans on 10. This other guy over there will let you buy as many as you want. Yeah. That one statement kept me from becoming like a mega millionaire because I swear to God, I would have had a thousand of these things by now if I'd known. <laughs> but just 10, right? And, and I, I still own like nine of those 10. And I went on and, and managed to, you know, get my mother-in-law to buy them in my name. And so I kind of did build it up beyond 10. And so I still own most of these. And, and so that's how I got into the single family side of things, right? So that's, that's just the, how did I go backwards from commercial to, to single family part of the story? Now, being data-driven, did that keep you out of your emotions, even though your family was throwing four letters of words at you in 2008? It felt really scary. Is that how you stayed out of the, the emotional component? I think that the data-driven side keeps you, you know, keeps you sane because, Obviously, if my family, all these experienced people are telling me that I'm an idiot, it is going to affect me. Being data-driven doesn't mean that I'm a robot. So I'm, I'm thinking maybe I'm wrong. But then when you look back at the data and you look at, okay, where were people two years ago, three years ago, five years ago that were buying all these homes compared to where I am today, the data was basically saying your situation is you, you can't lose. You may not win. But there's no way to lose from this situation, right? That there's no way that you would, if you rented these homes, you couldn't lose. And so eventually my family, of course, came around to it. They went out to Madeira. They bought a bunch of homes. They now all own them. But uh, you know, it was interesting. Uh, and it was definitely terrifying, you know, to, to kind of take that leap of faith and especially do it for 10 of them. 
And it's very scary when family starts to listen to you. And now all of a sudden you're the, fa- you're the, everybody's favorite guy on the, at the holidays. So. Oh yeah. I mean, a year later, they were all beating me up for not letting them in be, you know, before they did. It's like, now things are too expensive, Neil. You should have gotten us in before. <laughs> oh brother. In 20, in 2009. Oh man, that's terrible. <laughs> so you're still there. So you went to residential and then you said yeah. you went into multi- multifamily. Yeah. It, and, and there's an interesting story there. So what happened is, you know, so I'm doing this stuff on, on, uh, on data, and I really begin to understand that there's not enough people dealing with data in real estate. Because, you know, being in technology, you're used to, like, data sources being very clean and very available, and people are doing different things. You know, property radar was starting up, and, you know, housing alerts was there, and some of these places were pretty expensive. What I... So... I came up with this concept that, you know, I want to be like a Wikipedia of data. I want to just give it away. I don't want to have like a business model attached to it. I just want, you know, to give it away. And then that initial idea morphed. So eventually I was like, I don't want to be the Wikipedia of, of, of you know, data because or real estate data because it's too much work. I, I'm too lazy for that. So what I, what I said is, what I want to do is I want to put together an investing toolkit, something that's straightforward and simple that makes it easy for investors to figure out where to invest. And I want to give that away, right? And initially, it was just because back in 2008, 2009, I was very heavily influenced by Wikipedia and Craigslist, two models of basically you know, giving stuff away, right? Craigslist could have sold to eBay for $2 billion, and, but they said, yeah, but you know, you're going to make everything paid. Everything's free right now on Craigslist. So they didn't, and that influenced me. So I was like, I have to find a way to build like an easy toolkit, right? And then start giving that away. So I start doing my research. And as you can imagine, I go back to the Ukrainian hacker. And this time we basically start getting data sets. So we start pulling data sets from the Department of Labor website. We're pulling them from Zillow. And basically anybody that has open data, we're just pulling it all together and creating this 3,000 city data set. And then what I start doing is I put it into a statistical analysis software. And I'm like, I'm going to just crank this and, and keep throwing things into it and seeing which things affect profit the most, right? So it's like, I'm going to throw in population. Does that affect profit, population growth? Oh, yeah, there's an effect. But, but how much does it affect it? Okay, I'm going to pull population out. And now I'm going to throw in job growth. How much did, of a spike in profits occurred there? Then I'm going to throw in crime. I'm going to throw in schools. I'm going to throw in home price growth. I'm going to throw in uh, poverty levels. I'm going to throw in all these different things. And then I'm going to figure out which ones of those matter the most. And then I'm going to take out the stuff that's redundant. Like schools matter. But if I take schools out and keep the rest of them in, does it still show me the same data? Does it still show me the same good cities in the same uh, neighborhoods? So I ended up taking some stuff out because the other stuff that was in there was already giving me the appropriate result. So I, you know, this went on for a while and we basically started doing it. And while I was doing this, right, somebody approached me because I was running this technology company. It was a technology school. I had large classrooms. They came in and said, we want to open a meetup. And this is like 2010, something like that. And meetups were a brand new thing back then because the company had just opened up. And so they're like, yeah, we want to run a real estate meetup and you have classrooms, right? So you have internet access, projectors. And I'm like, come on in, you know, I'll, I'll show up as well. So initially I show up to these six o'clock meetups, which are 150 feet from my office, <laughs> right? You know, very convenient and start learning. And then eventually one day, you know, I start talking about all this, this jambalaya that I'm doing with the, with the statistic stuff. 
And I start talking about it and people there in the, in the room are really interested. They're like, why don't you present on this? And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not a real estate guy. So they're like, who cares? I mean, you've got something interesting, go present on it. So, you know, next month they don't find a speaker, which was, which happens a lot with meetups. So they basically a day before they call me and say, why don't you just talk and, you know, just tell people about what you're people and I'm like, you know, four or five people are going to show up, but they had sent it out with, with a description from me and like 50 people show up and they're all like nerds like me, like total geeks, like, you know, a bunch of dorks in the room. They're like, wow, this guy's doing something interesting. So I, I, I tell them this, the, the rules that I've come up with and what, and, and somebody in the room, room said, you know, you need to give this a name. So eventually I called it the real focus system. Just you know, five minutes of work. And we call it this real focus system. They're like, what do you want to do with it? Do you want to create a company? I'm like, no, I don't want to create a company. I just want to give it away. And so like, that's great. So that goes well. And then somebody that was in the room realized that I was giving it away and called me onto, you know, his meetup. So I went and taught at his meetup in San Jose. And before I knew it, people were calling me for conferences. And these days, of course, it's podcasts, but you know, back then it was conferences. And so Eventually, I gained some notoriety as like this data geek guy that goes around talking about data, but he does it in an interesting sort of way. So people like it. And he points to cities and neighborhoods that are appropriate for real estate investment and others that are not. That was my focus. And so, I mean, it, it just sort of between 10, 2010 and 13, this sort of kept, just kept snowballing. And I started keeping a database of all the people that were coming to my meetups. And that database kept building and building and building. And by the time 2012, 2013 came around and I really got into multifamily, uh, you know, from a professional perspective, until then, this is all, you know, while I'm running my tech company, but, I, but, but we sold our tech company in 2013. So I was like, okay, what's next, right? Right. And I have this huge database of people that I've never done anything with. For years, people have been saying, we'd like to invest with you. I'm like, no, I'm a tech guy. I, you can't invest with me, right? And now it's like, maybe I should invite people in. So I start doing projects. And from the very beginning, multifamily seemed more interesting to me than single family. And when I did that, those people did want to invest with me. They liked the, the geek approach of, of you know, looking at cities and neighborhoods. And so the transition actually became fairly smooth. So once I, we bought our first multifamily, it's been a long time, 237 units, you know, things just got rolling. And now we're about 2,000 units of multifamily about 500 investors, about $270 million. So and now we're adding asset classes. So we're adding industrial, we're adding public storage. We've added student housing, looking to add senior housing at some point. So it all seemed really planned, but it was completely chaotic as it happened. So that's kind of the next piece to it. I'm just thinking about how helpful you building the ground, from the ground up commercial in the state of California and then what a great transition. I mean, you already, I, that's the hardest part, ground up. So getting into multifamily. Now, were you building new multifamily or were you renovating? I should have started with new multifamily construction, but I didn't. I was, I was afraid that because, I mean, some of these projects were 20 or $30 million. So the first four that we did were, were not ground up. They were just value add. We were buying old multifamilies and improving them. Uh, but the last five projects that we've done, three of them have been ground up multifamily construction. So eventually I ended up where, you know, where I started in, 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 a, in a different sort of, um, you know, professional fashion. But um, yeah, that's, that's where we ended up. And that real focus system sort of blew up to the point where one day somebody came in and said, you know, this thing is really powerful. 
But all this meetup stuff, it only gets you fans in the San Francisco Bay Area. Sure, you get some through podcasts. But if you want this system to go national, you need a platform that's really big. So we walk around asking people, you know, what's a big platform if you want to give something away for free, like a, like a system that allows you to figure out the best cities in the United States. And I think 30, 40% of the people came up with, there's this website that gets 100 million hits a, a day called udemy.com, mm-hmm. right? Take this course, make a video out of it, add some labs and stick it on udemy.com and give it away for free. And I'm like, okay, that sounds like a good idea, right? Again, if, maybe if, if there was a podcast back then, maybe that's what I would, have, I would have done. But I went the Udemy route. And initially, I'm like, you know, if I get 1,000 people a year, I'm going to be really, really pleased. And now there's, right now, there's 6,000 people taking the course, right? And it became the most popular real estate course on udemy.com simply because it was always free and there was no pitch, right? At the end of the course, there's no toolkit. There's no next step. There's no, if you do this, you will get X, Y, and Z. That there, it isn't there. In fact, what's funny, Karen, is every week I get one email at least saying, so at the end of this, you didn't tell us what to buy. And I'm like, this was meant to be a gift. You got it. You don't have to come back and, and talk to me about it. Udemy doesn't even give me your email address, so I don't know how to talk to you, right? So it, it's, it's interesting how it became very popular. And the big thing that came out of it was that the national conference circuit then sort of accepted me. So I, I started teaching at conferences. Last year, we did about 18 conferences. This year, we'll do more because they're virtual. So there's just more conferences this year. Yeah, it uh, gets a little crazy having to do all the conferences and uh, uh I survive real estate at the Norris Group. I, I was asking some of these people who were serving in leadership roles at the national associations. And I think it was, um, Pat Combs was her name. She said one year she gave up 300 days of her life to travel or something like that when she was chair of the National Association of Realtors. So yeah, if you want to be on tour a lot, but you're saying you to me, when was the last time, did, are you continually updating the content or? I update it once in a year. So it needs a post COVID update. So that hasn't happened yet. Because oh, wow. the biggest thing with COVID is, so, and, and let me tell you a little bit about the course itself, and that's, that's an easy way to answer your question. So what I discovered after all this massaging of data in this statistical software was the five things that matter at the city level were population growth, okay. job growth, income growth, home price growth, and crime reduction, right? So once again, population growth, job growth, income growth, home price growth, and crime reduction, right? And one could say, well, there's schools there, there's poverty level. But what I found was, if I was ending up with a mix of cities, and then I would throw in more stuff and end up with the same mix of cities, well, that would make the product more complicated. And my goal was, because it is free, and always meant to be free, I want it to be simple. It's like, you should be able to pick some random city that you've never heard of, apply the system in less than 10 minutes and be able to say things like Fort Myers has really low population growth, but it's, you know, it's got decent job growth, but five miles away, Cape Coral has phenomenal numbers, much better than, you know, Fort Myers. You should be able to say that while never having talked about Cape Coral or Fort Myers. So that 10 minute um, benchmark meant that I had to give up on being truly comprehensive. I didn't have every single metric that, that helps job growth, but the key ones that, uh, sorry, that, that were driving profits, the key one were those five. 
Okay. And then over the years, people came back and said, your system is incomplete because this only counts at the city level. And all great cities have lots of crappy neighborhoods. So you need to basically design a second set that's designed for neighborhoods. So then we went back and updated the Udemy course and built an entire new section that had five benchmarks for neighborhoods, right? Interesting. So, okay. so we, we, we did that. And to me, to be honest, the neighborhood section was more powerful. Because, really? because you can really, I mean, you, you, can, you, know, you can go into a great city like Phoenix and a mile and a half from Phoenix is the county jail. I can tell you, I wouldn't be seen there after 5 p.m. I mean, that's a really nasty area. So the, the key thing was, I was telling people, here's a bunch of benchmarks that allows you to compare cities that you shouldn't be investing in, like Detroit, with cities where sh that you should be investing in, like, like you know, a bunch of cities in Utah or a bunch of cities in Idaho, right? But I'm not telling you where in that city to go. And so eventually, it took a lot more work, but we would be managed to figure out five metrics for neighborhoods as well. And so, those are the same or different? The, some of them are the same. So the, the neighborhood metrics, and our goal was basically cash flowing investment. So we weren't trying to basically be the end all of real estate. We were trying to say, you know, by that time I had a pretty big audience and my audience was into cash flowing real estate. So instead of giving them a, uh, just a fixed numbers, I gave them ranges because for example, I said, the median household income in your neighborhood should be between 40 and 70,000, okay, for you to invest in it. And they're like, well, what happens if it's higher than 70,000? Is that a bad thing? And I said, no, but once you go over $70,000 in income, that's a B plus neighborhood. And because there's so much appreciation in a B plus neighborhood, your cash flow is going to diminish down, right? So if you want cash flowing neighborhood, that is your range. At 70, it sort of peters out. Beyond that point, you'll have trouble making cash flow work. And if you're an appreciation-based investor, if you're rich, you don't mind sitting on it, stay above 70. That's fine. But the system also was showing people exactly how to figure out the 40, 50, 70 range of you know, uh, income for each neighborhood. Like, How do you go and figure out this information for a neighborhood? Right. All of that was part of the system. It was part of the course. So we did that. Then we did poverty level. We found that any time in any neighborhood in the US, if the poverty level is above 20%, the delinquency spikes and the retention rate falls a lot, right around 20%. So what the rule that we set was try to stay below 15% on the poverty level side, and you'll see long stay times, and you, you'll see low delinquency. So delinquency seemed very tight to poverty level because if people are poor, They've only got this month's money in the bank, this month's rent. So anything happens, like their car breaks down, they don't pay rent, right? So you want to stay away from that. And so you, you don't want to go into areas with high poverty level, even if the rent growth there is very high. So stuff like that was part of the neighborhood system. And the neighborhood system really made us take off. I mean, it, it just people just absolutely adored what we were doing. And they were coming back and giving us feedback. Some people went and corrected our system and came and said, you made a mistake here and we... We corrected that. Um, then we had to issue an update for student housing because if, you're, if you have a neighborhood that's student housing, all of our numbers were wrong. Why? Because students' incomes are at zero. Right. And so we were basically, there were all these perfectly good neighborhoods that our system was saying are, are, are crap, right? And then obviously our system was wrong. And so we had to basically come back and say, students, you know, here's this place where you go and you check to see how many students, what percentage of the people living here are students. And you've got to, you've got to adjust for that. 
right? Otherwise, you're just going to miss the, the boat on some of these really nice areas. So those sorts of things, but it was all, you know, community driven, email driven, people kept sending emails. Now, if you go to, you know, udemy.com, we have 500 five-star reviews. So I saw that just, I was it's, on there yesterday. It's an astonishing number of reviews to get and people really enjoyed it. And so, yeah, it, it sort of, that really helped me get into the multifamily side because people would go to udemy.com, take the course, and then they would basically ask the inevitable question, thank God, which was, so Neil, what are you doing in terms of investment? And by this time, I could actually say, ah, I am investing in real estate, right? <laughs> okay. It was no longer like the free stuff for tech, you know, that, that, that had been happening. I, I actually had something to offer. And so I, as, I, as I started telling people about projects, I started getting more and more investors. So it became a fairly large size community. So is so that's clearly the gen, genesis of multifamily university then? Yes, because people then eventually said, but you're a multifamily guy and you have this system called the real focus system that really has nothing to do with multifamily. And I was like, no, this system works equally well for single family and multifamily. Mm. But the truth is it only looks at one aspect of multifamily. It doesn't talk about asset management, doesn't talk about the legalities of multifamily, doesn't talk about like the 50 other things that you need to know about multifamily. All it tells you is where to buy multifamily. So it was very incomplete, right? So we were like, okay, so let's design a website called Multifamily University. And what we'll do is we'll take people that are like super studs in multifamily. They know 10 times as much as I do. And we'll call them in and do like these deep dive long webinars, some of them two hours long, just teaching content. And these people are amazing in that they've given it away. I have never paid a speaker a dime. And speakers are not allowed to do pitches on our platform. So I'm not ever really fully sure what they're getting out of it. Maybe it's just branding. I don't know. But they come in and they do these amazing events. And we do about 40 to 50 webinars a year. And about 75,000 people sign up for these webinars, right? So it's just this crazy community. And everyone's giving feedback. Our Facebook group is about to hit 10,000 people. It's phenomenal. I mean, yesterday, day before yesterday, somebody posted a question. And he received 91 responses to that question, right? Probably wow. 10 of them were, were even good, right? But, <laughs> but it, it was nice that the community does that now. So it's not Neil that has to answer all these questions. There's just so many people knowledgeable that are in there. So um, it's you know funny, I think- not normal, right? Like that is extremely difficult to build a community that will do that. So kudos to you. Yeah, yeah. and I think I, the, here's the we weird thing I learned from that, Aaron. The best way to build a community, I think, is to start with, with anything except the goal of building a community. I think that some of the communities that haven't been built from the very beginning, their goal was we are going to build a bunch of people together in one place. I felt like that wasn't a good goal. I felt like a good goal was we're going to find some really awesome stuff that nobody knows about and put it in this one place and make sure that people know about it. Okay. And I think that built a better community than than you usually you know than than you usually get. Con content first. You've always yeah yeah. It was a very content driven approach, and then we built. They kept building on it. Multifamily University went beyond the concept of the real focus system. It just became one aspect of it, and then we started doing data reports. We started writing about areas in the U.S. that people didn't know about. Like, for example, we got into this concept of corridors. Like, I'm very fanatic about corridors. I, people talk about this city is great and that city is great. I don't think that's, that's right. I think what really happens is at times in the U.S., certain corridors, which are always along freeways, 
become powerful. And of course, there's some cities in there. So three years ago, when somebody I know named Bruce Norris started talking about Florida, I published, and this was in 2017, you can Google it, an article called The Corridor of Opportunity, right? Or Neil Bauer's Corridor of Opportunity. And it defined a space that was 144 miles. And it started from above Orlando, so northeast of Orlando, running through Orlando along four, going through Lakeland, hitting Tampa, turning south, heading down towards, you know, Bradenton and, and a little bit further. Right. And then a year later, I updated it to extend the corridor further from Bradenton through Sarasota, now ending in Cape Coral and Fort Myers. And then, I, then the final iteration of that corridor was I started calling it a web because it started to spread beyond the freeway to the villages and to um, other places. Like it basically started going north of Freeway 4 and, and south of Freeway 4 and became a web, right? And then we started, we found a second corridor. It was in Utah from Logan to Springville, passing through Salt Lake City. And now my favorite corridor today is 59 miles between Austin and San Antonio, passing through um, New Bronzefelds and San Marcos. So we would start writing about this like geeky stuff. And we, we gathered this community of geeks. They're like, ah, oh, this is really great. And some other people are like, this is the most boring shit ever. <laughs> <laughs> I am excited. and I want to find out how to participate. <laughs> this sounds amazing. <laughs> now, you said corridor, right? So is it, it's like you're reading off my notes. I, I haven't even, I have this long list of questions, two pages, and <laughs> we're all over. And it's, it's perfect. It's exactly. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I bounce all over. I, no, I'm, no, I'm, it's great. What makes a good city? What makes an excellent corridor? What triggers that aha moment for you? Well, I think uh, a lot of times it's compression. So if you look at, I, I say Lakeland might be a better opportunity than Orlando and Tampa because of compression. So the corridor is usually defined by two anchor cities, right? So in this case, it's Orlando in the east and it's Tampa in the west. And then the corridor then starts to extend. So from Orlando, it's now expanding uh, up north toward Jacksonville, not quite all the way, but you know maybe another 40 or 50 miles. And then from Tampa, it's extending downwards towards Cape Coral and Sarasota. What I find is there's usually one city, uh, well, two cities, that are compressing. So San Antonio is only about 60 miles from Austin. And what we had, what I'd learned was the San Francisco Bay Area sort of became this compression area and entire sections of freeway became cities. Like cities just got plopped in, right? So Concord used to be a city and Fremont used to be a city. And then in between, there wasn't much. And then cities like Dublin appeared. Cities like Danville sort of appeared over the last 20, 25 years. So we realized that when you've got two anchor cities, the area in between gets filled in and that area is much more profitable, right? right. Than the cities themselves. So, um, you know, and then there's the secondary concept. Sometimes you don't get two cities in a corridor. Sometimes it's a primary that is becoming so powerful and creating so much profit for real estate that it drives its growth down in, in the direction of some freeway. So here's some examples, right? So Denver is really driving the growth of Fort Collins and Colorado Springs, right? It's the driver. The San Francisco Bay Area is responsible for Sacramento's growth, right? right. Uh, you know, Tacoma benefits from Seattle. Olympia benefits from Tacoma. So what we started realizing is that 
what was happening is a city was actually driving the growth of all the other cities around it. And the bigger opportunity was always in the smaller cities. It wasn't in the large ones. Because by the time you heard about the large ones, 50 million other people had too. So you were usually late. So it made sense to figure out where is the growth now flowing? Like today, I don't feel like the right place to go to is, is, is Phoenix. I think it's Tucson because so much money has been made in Phoenix in the last four or five years that those people are like, you know, I bought something for 100,000, sold it for 200,000, bought it for 200,000, sold it for 400,000. I don't think it's going to double again. Where should I take my money and go? I live in Phoenix. Well, the, the, the answer is I should go to Tucson and buy it for 200,000. Hopefully it'll become 400,000 again, right? So I think that if you use data to figure out these compression cities, you start seeing patterns that are really amazing and you can get really crazy returns, absolutely nuts sort of returns. Now, that really works when you're in a sort of like a bottom of the market. Do you have any concerned? And this is some of the research that the Norris Group, when I was there full time, did a lot of. So as an example, in California, you had a lot of people, affordability became an issue on, along the coast. So they would end up in the Inland Empire. In the Bay Area, they went to Sacramento because they got right. priced out. But when the market returned, those were typically the first to give back and they were the last ones to come back. Right. Um, any concern there? Um, to a lesser extent than five years ago. So one of the, I'm going to say something that for a moment, I'm going to apologize and say, look, what I'm about to say is going to sound incredibly heartless to those that have lost lives in the last four months. 135,000 people have died because of COVID. Mm -hmm. But it is my belief that over the next 10 to 20 years, people will see COVID to be a phenomenally beneficial defining effect, event in the history of our country. Because okay. what had really happened to America and to most countries in the world was that growth worldwide is slowing because of our ridiculously bad use of real estate. Ridiculously bad. We've crammed you know, 50% of the world's population into 2% of the land mass. We say that we don't have space, which is nonsensical. Ever see a, a map of the, of the US at night from space? Mm -hmm. Only about 3% of it is lit. Clearly, we have all the land in the world. But the problem was the jobs. The problem was the jobs were concentrated, especially the well-paying jobs were concentrated in certain areas. And so you had basically this one-hour freeway radius around that. And that was the bubble of the US. That's ridiculously, crazily inefficient, right? And nobody's really addressed that until COVID all of a sudden addressed it. And what COVID did, and what will be, people will, will write books about this in the time to come is, COVID took 20 to 30 years of growth in virtualization and compressed it into three months, right? Mm -hmm. right? And, and, and it did the same thing for e-commerce. So just so you know, e-commerce is up 77% compared to last year. Usually grows about 10% a year. So we got seven years of e-commerce growth in the last four, four months, seven years, right? Just, just absolutely astonishing, absolutely mind-blowing. So right there, by the way, if you understand what are all the things that need e-commerce and what does e-commerce need, like logistics, warehousing, right? So you just in four months got 77% of growth. Well, we didn't create new warehouses. We didn't create new logistics. So guess what's going to happen? In the next five years, you're going to have a, a supply-demand crunch because retail meltdown, that money is going somewhere. So, well, it has to go to warehousing because warehousing is one-third the price per square foot. And that's what people need today, right? Warehousing, 
to, to deal with this explosion in e-commerce. Now, in the same way, you apply that comment that, that COVID is creating a liberalization of the work anywhere, live anywhere paradigm. We've been talking about people leaving the San Francisco Bay Area. You know, Bruce has been talking about people are leaving and going to Florida. Yes, but how many? Hundreds of thousands. Yes. But what, it, what I believe is about to happen is that hundreds of thousands is now going to become millions. And when it becomes millions, it actually changes real estate. It changes the way that we've been doing real estate in this country because it then forces CEOs to, to do what Facebook and Twitter did, which is if you don't want to come back in the office after COVID is over, you don't have to, right? And I use the word forced lightly, Aaron, because what COVID did, which was its greatest gift to humanity, is it forced 10, 20 million CEOs to get to learn Zoom to get webcams, to get high-speed internet at home, clean up the, the background and do virtual backgrounds like this one. Basically, it forced them to do everything that was needed because the CEOs were the ones that were preventing this work-from-home model. They were the ones that were, you know, there were a few that were good at it, so it's not everybody. But in general, if you look at a million CEOs, they were the problem. And we took 20 years of that mindset shift in the minds of CEOs and be forced into three months. So in my mind, going back to your, you, I mean, this is, this is huge. This, I, and five years from now, I guarantee people will talk about this, that COVID did this. COVID resulted in this. Sorry, got to move this mic back here. And, but today, what this means is that I am not as worried about secondary markets in the U.S. crashing and burning because Job diversification is now a reality, and it's, it's, it's actually going to accelerate in the next five years. And if job diversity accelerates, then the smaller cities don't get hurt as much in the next recession as they would have in the past. So this is a paradigm shift, right? I do not believe that this thing where a recession happens and jobs come back to the center is going to happen yeah, in, in this recession or the next one. We actually haven't seen job losses in some of these smaller cities in the last four months. So if you were a city in a secondary market, you might be advertising uh, aggressively to primary markets trying to get people <laughs> uh, out your way. And you might not even have to do that. I think people are doing it anyway. So um, there's videos, watch them on, on, uh, on uh, the internet. New York has an 85% growth in apartment inventory in the last four months. 85% jump in inventory. That's catastrophic. Their yeah. rents, they're now, the average uh, apartment owner is offering two months free. That's the norm, right? So that market is going to suffer because there's a huge number of people that are like all of a sudden free to leave. And yes, we know that seven out of 10 of these people will come back. Maybe it's eight out of 10. But you know that two out of 10 for such a large number is also an extraordinary number, and that creates a massive amount of change. It, it basically pivots the situation towards smaller cities, and I think that's a multi-decade pivot. That is the key lesson to learn from COVID. It's very interesting. So in, in this city, the, the metrics you gave me, population, growth, job, income, home prices, yep. and um, crime reduction, mm -hmm. I, I'm thinking about how that relates to how can you tell 
what is a good city? And you sort of built it into that. So I was going to, one of my questions was, what makes a great city? Is it a smart city? Is it a city investing in really fast internet? Is it somebody with a, a great entertainment mix? But I guess if you're looking at these things, they're doing something right. Usually what happens is if you do those five metrics right, and there's a bunch of cities that do really well on those metrics, you know, Salt Lake City, for example, Provo, Utah does really well, Orlando does really well, or at least it did <laughs> until about four months ago. Um, but when you, when you see those metrics, people think culture is created first, and then because culture is created, the jobs come. That is a very popular myth. I think it's nonsense. What I've found is jobs are created and that creates culture. So you look at Austin, Michael Dell built, you know, started Dell there in, in 1994, and that built, you know, Austin's story. And then five or 10 years after that, they started doing the, that, that big uh, show, Southwest, South by Southwest. Southwest, yeah. Right? And, and that started to build, that show started to build Austin's culture. Mm-hmm. But that happened 10 years after the jobs came in. Now, if you take that example and apply it to a bunch of other cities, you'll start to see that their culture develops as they go. Silicon slopes. I mean, the astonishing culture that Utah and Provo have was not there. I mean, a lot of this culture wasn't there 10 years ago. And a lot of the jobs moved because they start, Adobe started to move jobs from the San Francisco Bay Area to, to Silicon Slopes because they realized that their universities are phenomenal and they're you know one-fifth of the cost of our universities here. And so one company, I think Novell started that move and then, then it was followed by Adobe and, and now basically just everybody, right? So Facebook, Amazon, and Google all opened billion-dollar locations there in the last six months. So I think it is not culture that, that makes a great city. It's these fundamentals that make a great city. And then the culture grows. It automatically grows. And some cities do it better and some don't do it as well. And, and, and I think, like, for example, Austin now has developed a really cool culture. And so is Tucson. Tucson has a very artsy scene. Now I but, have to go back and see when Austin got weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I tell people, Austin is the cheapest city in California. And they look at me for a second and then they're like, oh, oh, yeah, right? It's like, yeah, they think of it. I mean, because they're like, no, it's the most expensive city in Texas. Like, no, it's not in Texas. It's in California. It's really cheap, right? And you look at it that way and people are like, people get it. It's like, so Austin has room to grow. Yes, it has decades to grow because it's competing with California. My sister just moved there. I, yeah, I totally understand. I, got, I was there for the first time last year. Um, I was by a hotel where they have the fruit bats under the bridge. It was very strange. I, <laughs> I, after living in New York for seven years, I did a stint in Minneapolis. I spent a lot of time in Chicago. I like big cities. Um, it's going to be interesting to see the winners and the losers. So there's, no, there's nothing that you're looking at like, oh, hey, they're talking about a mass transit system and a train that's eventually going to reach there. Um, I is- used to do that. I, I've stopped doing it because to, to be honest, what I found was when I came up with a list of powerful cities, especially the post-COVID cities, post-COVID. every one of them was doing those things. Like, I mean, you look at Salt Lake, they've just built, finished building a phenomenal train system they're doubling the size of their airport. They're building an entire inland port that is larger than the size of Manhattan, right? Now, that's one example. But if I was to take like 10 of my favorite cities, and I'm probably not investing in six out of these 10, I just love their demographics. They're all doing great things. So the great things didn't lead to cities doing well. Cities doing well led to great things, right? And the opposite is also true. So one of my old time favorite cities in America is Chicago. 
right? Phenomenal city, one of the great cities of the world, right? Not just of the US. But I tell people that it's a horrible thing to be investing in Chicago right now. And they basically say, why? And my answer is that great cities build great works. And Chicago seems to be consistently failing at building new great things. And the second thing is they've managed to get themselves into a situation. And there's a little bit of jest in this, but 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 get this. And this was pre-COVID, right? Pre-COVID, I said, Chicago and Cook County, they have three choices. Bankruptcy in two years, mm. bankruptcy in three years, and bankruptcy in four years. <laughs> those are their three choices, right? When you have only those three choices and nothing else is possible, why would I want to go and invest in these great cities? I'm going to wait until that bankruptcy happens. Stockton cleaned up its act. Orange County cleaned up its act. Chicago, being one of the great cities of the world, will clean up its act. I'm just going to wait until the bankruptcy before I add Chicago to my list. Because today, it's horrible. And just in the last four months of COVID, Chicago, and, and, and you used to have a D grade on these sites that rank cities and their stability. It's gone from D to F. They've lost $2 billion in four months. And now we're at the point where in a, within a few, I think, two quarters or three quarters, they won't be able to pay interest, just interest on their loans. Wow. So that has to be a full stop. If you cannot pay interest on your loans, you can only do one thing. You can create a Ponzi scheme and get more money so that you can pay the interest. And now you have new interest. So you have to get even more money. You know how that ends, right? I mean, it just, yeah. that's where it is. Chicago is months away from Ponzi scheme, right? Well, let's talk about COVID-19 and asset class. Now, we've talked a lot about city and, and uh, selecting neighborhoods. How do you go about selecting, well, I, first an asset class and then we'll go to a COVID-19 and maybe there's a little bit of a mix, but you are diversifying your mix. So how do you go about asset class in those great cities? So the first thing I look at is what asset classes are benefiting, right? What's happened, right? And I've always believed in public storage. But when I looked at public storage in the last four months, it hasn't done well. So I'm basically saying the data doesn't suggest that public storage is doing well because all that new construction of public storage, some of which was not documented because it was mom and pop, is basically pulling down rents. I looked at multifamily and multifamily did pretty well in the last four months. Sorry. Multifamily did pretty well in the last four months. But I'm a little hesitant because it seems to me that multifamily received a very large boost from the unemployment benefits. So I want to see how multifamily does for two months after the, the benefits expire, right? Now right. they're talking about bringing them back in a much tinier fashion. You know, we might get $200 a week, but that's still too low of a number for people to pay rent. So I want to see how multifamily does. And as I'm looking at different asset classes, I'm looking at, I'm looking at senior housing. I'm not so sure. You know, would you, if, if your grandma was in one of these big box facilities with 200 other aged people, would you leave her there or would you just move her to your basement? So to me, until a vaccine, a strong vaccine, not a weak vaccine, but a strong one is found, I think senior housing is going to have issues. I think it's a good asset class, but it's going to have issues, right? Mm -hmm. Student housing, I think I was wrong on that. I predicted student housing's doom back in April. I said students are not going to come back. Turned out I was wrong. The enrollment nationwide for student housing for fall is as strong today as it was a year ago. And the biggest reason that we've now learned is students are fed up with mom and dad. Mom and dad want them out and they want to get out of mom and dad's house, right? So that, that 
four months of basically just being trapped in the house with mom and dad means that students have really wanted to go back to the university. So that, that was, I was wrong on that one. I think student housing might do well. Uh, but I think the biggest one is industrial. I, I keep saying this. You know, e-commerce, 10 year, 10% year over year is normal growth. 77% means that we've gotten seven and a half years of growth in four months. That growth is going to create supply shortages. We need a billion square feet of industrial in this country. Oh my we God. have to, because keep in mind, we're about to lose at least 500 square feet of 500 million square feet of retail, right? This is a swap. It's not a net new gain. It's a swap. Money goes from one place to another place, right? Retail is going to see an absolute meltdown. I don't think hotels are going to be as bad as retail. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, I know John Burns was on the show a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about um, mall owners uh, and Amazon has clearly been targeting malls. They're in perfect place positions, really well located in cities, but I don't want our local mall to turn into an Amazon facility. So yeah, they're yeah. talking about mixing up the inventory, senior housing, apartments, more entertainment. And then it just has, so happens here in, in Riverside, in the Moreno Valley, a neighboring city, they've been talking about the World Logistics Center. Highly controversial, very political. Um, and I'm really concerned about the jobs that everybody likes to promote the jobs. But I know, I mean, Amazon has been investing in robotics for years. I, yep. I'm obsessed with robotics channels. And I see yep. industrial, how tall they are. And I can see how far the product goes. But in the corner, uh, I, there's this one picture of an Amazon warehouse where floor to ceiling, it looks like five stories tall. Do you think because of robotics that we're going to need as much industrial because robotics will fill the gap and be able to help us with that, that problem of they'll be able to fully utilize the entire airspace in industrial? I think robotics is the greatest threat to our economy in the short run. I mean, it is incredibly dangerous. But if you think about it, I'm more bullish on industrial because of robotics, Think about it. Robotics give you incredible salary advantages. Now you have these thousands of robots that are running around 2 million square foot warehouses that are mostly empty, right? Mm-hmm. It isn't my job to provide jobs for my, you know, my citizens. I am not a politician, right? And I don't lead a city. It's my job to provide returns for my investors. Right. So from a social, social perspective, the rise of robotics is terrible for for people, right? You can now have a 2 million square foot facility with only 100 workers, where 20 years ago, there'd be 5,000 people working there, right? I get that. But Aaron, why is that bad for industrial? It's good for industrial because what we're doing is we're swapping space for people and people salaries are always more expensive than space. On a per square foot basis, if you can take 5,000 people and cut it down to 200, that 4,800 persons worth of saving is massive compared to the one-time investments on the robots. So the robots are here. They're here to stay, and it accelerates from here on. That's why I think industrial is a very powerful story. Does it have a colossal bad impact on our employment numbers in the U.S.? Yeah, this is just the beginning. And and remember, COVID also accelerated e-commerce which means it accelerates robotics. It accelerates all of the stuff that's happening there and um, makes things uh, a lot worse, actually. Um, so there's, there's going to be a lot of unemployment issues related to that. Any other COVID trends that you see coming out in either residential or commercial? Yeah, one of the th- trends that I see is 
people are not just going to move from places like New York and, and Los Angeles to places like Phoenix or, or Salt Lake City. That's going to happen. But people are also going to move back to the suburbs. If you had to go into the office four times a week, you're, you, you're, you wanted to be 30 miles from work. But if you have now have to go back to the office once a week or twice a week, you're going to be in a 50 or a 60 mile radius. So we had this movement back in the 2005, 2012 timeframe where people were beginning to go urban again. And then starting to 2016, it started to go the other way where people were beginning to go suburban again. We started to see vacancies falling both in suburban multifamily and also in suburban office. And today, suburban office has the same vacancy as central business district, downtown office, right? Wow. So things have adjusted to the point where it's come a long way. There was a huge gap between the two and then it's now the same. Why? I'm not sure if people are following jobs or employers said, you know, I don't want to pay $4 a square foot. I'm going to go pay $1.20 in a flexed industrial building in a suburb that allows me to open a location, right? So maybe they went first and then people followed them. Or maybe people said, we're going to, we can't afford the central business district, you know, uh, home. So we're going to go out there again. And then the job sort of followed, but whatever happened, it happened. And so in 2020, in Feb, before COVID, we were already seeing this push back to suburbanization and then COVID just massively, massively accelerated the suburbanization. Interesting. Okay. Um, opportunity zones. I know that's something that you've talked about. Um, are you still excited about them? Any impacts of COVID? I think I, I'm more cautious than I was in Feb. And, and the reason for that is the premise of opportunity zones was the government is going to give you phenomenal tax benefits so that you and a bunch of other investors highlight you and a bunch of other investors are together going to put lots of money into opportunity zones. And because you put money in and they put money in, there was an all ships rising effect and lots of money was made. The area went up in value and everyone was happy and everyone made profits, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody really talks about what happens if that premise wasn't true and you were the only one that ended up investing in that opportunity zone and other people invested in other opportunity zones, not yours, right? Well, in that case, you built a class A asset in a class C distressed area with low incomes and no population growth, right? Well, forget about the tax benefits. You, you are at risk for your principal, right. right? So there's both of these ways of looking at this. So I'm very cautious about opportunity zones because opportunity zones really needed to, it's a good idea, but to grow, it needed fertile ground. It needed it needed the economy to be strong in 2019, and it was in 2020. It wasn't 2021. It's not going to be, and maybe not even 2022. So I think there's going to be some crash and burn stories that are going to come out of that area. But at the same time, I think that there are going to be certain opportunity zones where it's going to keep going. I, I just think that the outlook is not as bright as it was four months ago. It was very cloudy going into opportunity zones. I didn't see cities marketing the two different you could be a business in an opportunity zone and you can be a developer. I didn't see any cities doing a really good job communicating that, at least here in yeah. California. They tried. They started the websites. Um, the, whoever was leading the charge disappeared in 2019 and worked for the federal government and it just sort of fell apart and it got quiet. Yeah. So I just, it'll be interesting to see how it pans out. And you bring up a good point. <laughs> when people have raised money in an opportunity zone, you have a lot of people in bed together for 10 years. Uh, a lot can happen in 10 years, but not all of it good. 
Yeah, I, I feel like the developers, there, there's too many developers that people are giving money to that have never held assets. Mm-hmm. So one of the things when people ask me, you know, who should I give money to in Opportunity Zones? Neil, you only have one project. It's been years. It's been funded. You don't intend doing any others. My advice was make sure you only give money to developers that by their nature hold assets mm-hmm. because 10 years is two recessions, maybe three. If you give money to a developer and that developer has basically gets fed up with the property, they're going to sell. Now, not only do you lose your profits, you also use, lose your tax benefits. Right. right. So it, it's it's a double whammy for you. So make sure you're giving your money to people that have asset management companies. They have employees managing assets because 70% of developers don't manage anything. They build stuff, they fill stuff, and they sell stuff. And often they're they're so you know in so much of a hurry they don't even fill it. They they give up that money to somebody else. They just basically sell empty buildings as soon as they're done with them. Right. And which which always strikes me as stupid, because like if you just filled it up, you'd make a lot more money. But their their whole model is, no, I'm done with this. I, I don't want anything to do with it. Somebody take me off. Take it off my hands. Go fill it yourself. And I'll give you that that extra delta for it. When a developer thinks like that, wow. to be in bed with them for 10 years, with you going in with one of the biggest recessions of all time, doesn't sound the best opportunity out there. No, it doesn't. And I was just thinking about all the taxes that can change as cities try to plug the gaps. It could be a messy decade. It could be. I mean, and, and, and one of the key things, Aaron, is, and, and people say, you know, uh, I was on the Realty Mogul uh, podcast and, and Jillian Hellman, Realty Mogul CEO, asked me, you know, what keeps you up at night, Neil? And I said, so, you know, so far with COVID, things have been okay. And, you know, the, the, the government response was very, very strong on the fiscal side, very strong. And so it's been okay. What keeps me up at night is how can a world-changing black swan event like this occur and a domino not fall? So Jillian says, what do you mean by a domino? So I said, we have all these deadbeat countries that have been in deep trouble for a long time, Japan, Italy, Greece. We have deadbeat economies in the US that are in trouble, parts of New Jersey, Cook County, and, and Chicago. We have all these places that were one domino away from just falling apart, right? And then this happens, right? They were already in deep stuff. So in my mind, what hasn't happened yet, but is a certainty to happen, is that a big domino falls. People are like, yeah, but Greece went bankrupt. The world economy didn't stop. Greece isn't, you know, Greece is a fraction of 1%. What if Italy goes bankrupt? Italy is more than 1% of the world economy. The, the shock waves would be colossal. Cook County is a $500 billion economy. The, the economy of greater Chicago is bigger than most countries in the world. Yeah. So to me, this is not like Stockton or Orange County de- declaring bankruptcies. Those are localized events. This is something that shakes an entire country to its core. And if it happens with Italy, it's going to shake the Eurozone to its core. So yeah. to me, those dominoes are ahead of us. They cannot possibly have happened yet. But in the next six months, I think a major domino falls. A black swan on top of a black swan. Yes. To me, there's a secondary black swan that's going to be caused by this primary black swan. And you can't really call Cook County a black swan, right? I mean, there's 500 articles written about the fact that their, their options are basically about when they're going to declare bankruptcy and how to do that legally, because unfortunately, they have issues with how to declare bankruptcy, right? But, but at some point, it's it, it just cannot happen anymore. And, and 
I mean, even economies like California, Aaron, I mean, the, the deficits that were piling up month over month are just staggering. It's decades of deficits that were piling up in months. So there's major challenges to deal with here. But but I think major challenges mean major opportunity. I mean, right now, we, we should be doing, um, you know, looking at buying, uh, you know, foreclosures. If the foreclosures don't exist, maybe we should be doing lease options. All that stuff that worked back in 2008, it's going to start working in about five to six months. So there's right. also a lot of opportunity there. All right. Well, to round out, because we've hit the hour mark, uh, what do you like to follow? I'm just curious. What, what do you read? Uh, your feta, favorite data-driven sources? Where do you go to? Well, on the macroeconomic side, I like to read John Malden. I think he's, he's phenomenal. Uh, his, his newsletter that comes in every week is, is just an incredible place to, to go. Uh, there's Real Vision TV. Those, those guys are pretty strong as well. Uh, so that's, I, I like to read the macro because it affects everything that we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the real estate side, obviously, I, I, I read everything that your, your, your dad has written. You know, that's kind of, he's my go-to guy on the, on the data side. Um, and then I follow a guy named, uh, I wish he kind of was more, a little more flashy. His name's Ingo Windsor, and he runs Local Market Monitor. And Ingo has now won the Crystal Ball Forecasting Award three years in a row. So oh. his forecasting, local market monitor, is very strong. So um, I, I, he just, he's not uh, flamboyant enough. You know, he, he needs uh, some lessons from Elon Musk. <laughs> oh, boy. And he needs a Twitter account. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Well, if people want to get in contact with you, how, how, might, how should they go about doing that? I think the best way, there's two, two ways. They're both simple. First one is, uh, it is my extreme good luck and bad luck to be the only Neil Bawa on the worldwide internet. So if you type in N-E-A-L space B-A-W-A, the first like 200 articles are all about me. So if someone's flaming me, you're going to find it very quickly. Okay. Um, and then the second way is Multifamily University, which is multifamilyu.com. That's multifamily by the letter u.com. We do 40 plus webinars. You're going to like them. You're going to like them. They're, they're different kinds. We just did one where we talked about how the real estate market in the last 10 years is being entirely driven by the banking system, not by fundamentals, but by the banking system and what it does. So that was a very interesting webinar. We got lots of kudos out of that. So we do these kinds of crazy deep dive things. So check it out, multifamilyu.com. I really appreciate your time today. This has been really fun. Thank you for listening to the Data Driven Real Estate Show. You can find show notes and links to some of the resources mentioned in the show at datadrivenrealestate.com. Click that join the community and you'll be forwarded to our community where you can even ask questions for upcoming guests, ask questions of current guests. We monitor there and we'd love to engage with you. Uh, Please don't forget to like, favorite, subscribe and share on any of your favorite platforms. It helps us out a great deal. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.